You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 53 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And today we're coming to you from the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. The Library Pros Podcast is produced bi-monthly, so don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to join our email subscription service on our webpage, thelibrarypros.com. Please consider leaving a review on the service of your choice and tell a friend or colleague because word of mouth is how people learn about us. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. So today, joining us via Google Hangouts is Sally. Oh, boy, here we go. Pifarangi. Very good. That was not so bad, right? Okay, so Sally is the creator of Finding Heroes, which is findingheroes.co.nz, and her blog, thelibraryboss.com. The Library Boss Project allows Sally to help libraries and librarians with training and, and self-paced online courses for library staff teaching practical skills such as project management and digital literacy. Uh, over a hundred courses have been completed by library staff from Australia and New Zealand and she also has over 1,200 insightful posts on her blog which has over a thousand subscribers. And Sally has also been uh, a librarian and has a uh, real talent for project coordinating. So she's joining us today from Auckland, New Zealand. So thanks for joining us, Sally. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So we're going to speak with Sally today about how to motivate reluctant staff to use technology with confidence and the idea of running a Twitter conference and about her project, mm -hmm. The Library Boss. But first, let's learn a little bit about Sally and how she got her start in library land. So, Sally, how long have you been in the profession? And tell us about your background. Huh. I've been on librarianship for a long time. Um, I graduated in uh, 93, I think, or 94, so uh, quite a while. And I've worked in a whole range of different libraries. I'm the kind of person that moves around a lot mm -hmm. and tries lots of different things. So my first library job was in a special library, and it was special in a number of senses, uh, special in terms of how we categorize um, libraries, but also special in terms of that it was a marae library, which is a library in a um, Māori community, um, the indigenous people of New Zealand. And the, a marae library, or a marae in itself, is a place that teaches and preserves um, ancient Māori knowledge and customs and narratives. And so I was the sole charge librarian in that library. And um, they place a huge emphasis on education and sharing Māori knowledge and customs with other people who were interested. So that was my first library job, which was quite kind of um, extremely special because one, I'd never worked in libraries before, and two, I knew nothing about librarianship, <laughs> and three, I was running this library and, um, you know, developing its collection and trying to um, be a librarian at the same time. So that was kind of, you know, a unique start, I suppose. Um, and I've been in a whole lot of other libraries, um, 
public libraries, university libraries, and um, all mostly in Auckland, but I've also worked in other places as well. Just doing a huge range of things, uh, collection development, electronic resources, websites, training, pretty much everything. Not a lot of time on front desk public library work, maybe about 18 months worth doing that. That's kind of my role in libraries. So tell us how you first became interested in, in the library as a career. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't think it was a decision that I made, really. I think it was something that just happened. I'm a kind of person who... Um, I finished university and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And library, there was a online library postgrad course that you could do. And it was the first kind of online course that I had seen that kind of, you know, interested me long enough to want to do a course while I could still look for a job. So I just applied for it and... I don't think I really made a decision whether to stay or not. I think it just happened. It wasn't something that I consciously thought about. But then again, I don't think about a lot of things terribly much. It kind of just goes with the flow and see what kind of opportunities arise and make the best of them when they do. It's a great idea. It's a great way of looking at things. <laughs> well, some people think so. <laughs> <laughs> So, so how was your library experience? Um, varied. <laughs> That's a careful answer. <laughs> um, I've had a huge range of library experiences. And, you know, as I said, the first one was sole charge. So I was relying on a lot of people from within the profession to help me. And I was very thankful that they were very willing to um, support me in um, helping me understand how to run a special library, how to run a marae library, and also how to do librarianship. Um, and so my library experience was probably formulated based on that support I got from other practicing librarians. And being in library school helped me um, develop that network and grow that network of people who were much more experienced than I was. So I think that probably helped with the variety of jobs that I've had and the different experiences that I've had, that I've always had a very strong support network within librarianship. So training seems to be your passion, and we're going to dive deeper into that when we get into the next segment. But how did this become your, your quote-unquote thing? What what. what Brought, drew you to it like you know that moth to the flame kind of thing <laughs> um once again i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i think we found the title to your episode yeah yeah <laughs> how did i get here i think uh, well i'm always interested in learning new things right and i want to learn how to do things better how i can be better at what i do how i can be better at helping people be the best that they can be and so a lot of the roles that I've had have been around um, 
motivating and encouraging people to try new things and to um, use their abilities in the best way possible. And I think that training is a part of that and that it allows me to focus on um, people and their skills and their strengths and bringing those out into the jobs that they do and, um, you know, providing them with the confidence and the support to enable them to do that. So I think that's kind of probably how it became my thing is that, you know, we get so caught up in what you can't do and what you shouldn't do and, um, you know, what you should, what isn't your role kind of thing. And I'm just kind of all about, well, okay, we've got all of that to work within, but how can you be the best person within those constraints? Well, that's makes... probably how it became my thing. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that. And again, we're going to talk about this a little bit later. But talking about, you know, building on strengths and trying to be the best that you can be, you can't be unless you know what you're doing. So, yeah. And it, I know that I can speak from personal experience when I know what I'm doing and I'm trying to show somebody else and they're just not getting it or they refuse to get it. You know, that can be incredibly frustrating. So I, I, I totally see where you're coming from. Yeah, and I also think that some people, um, because we all have different experiences, we see the thing that we should be getting from a different perspective. And sometimes it takes a while to, to gel and to figure out, you know, am I doing it the right way or is there another way in which I can do the same thing but utilize my skills? So if you're not very good at tech, for example, how do you do your job to the best of your ability? You know, what things can you do to help you become, you know, more confident with tech? Because largely, I think it comes down to confidence and spending the time trying to understand a person's perspective to give them that confidence and make them feel good about what they're doing. Because we always get told that we're not doing enough and that we aren't doing it as, as fast or as best or with as many people as we should be doing it. And I just kind of think that we need to spend more time with individuals and provide them with that support and training that they need. That's a great way to look at it. I think I think the library, I think the world in general needs a needs a better look like that at it, but especially the library uh, world for sure. Okay, yeah. so yeah, why don't we take a short break, and when we get back, we're going to speak with Sally about training uh, the library boss blog, which is I'm I know I've subscribed to, and getting that reluctant staff to uh, be interested in in tech and having that confidence with tech. So we're going to take a short break, and we will be right back. back with Sally Pifaringi. Did I say that right, Sally? You did. Thanks, Bob. Did pretty good. All right, good. So, yep. so we're back with Sally from thelibraryboss.com. And Sally, so we touched on your passion in the last segment 
uh, with training, which is so important in libraries with all the technology that we use on a day-to-day -day basis. Yet there's still a pushback. So how should library administration approach easing staff into the use of tech? <clears throat> um, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, this is an understatement. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good answer. <laughs> and, but I think... It, I think, I think there's that tension, right? You know, I think that we have this tension about trying to get stuff done as quickly as possible and hoping that library staff will be able to follow at the same speed at which we want to get things done. But the, on the other side, there's this tension that um, library staff are individuals and that everyone is different. And yet we put them through the same training program we put them through the same, um, you know, communication methods, and we don't spend a lot of time recognizing the differences that people bring, and how often that when we use technology, that there's often more than one way to do things. Yet all our training is about this is how you do it. It's not about okay, this is what we want to achieve. How do you think the best way is to do it? We don't have so many of those conversations that allow people to explore the goal that we want to achieve and is in their own way and i think that that's really difficult because of the tensions that we have yeah but it's also something that i think is probably more effective than running you know wholesale training courses that are expected to be a one-size-fits-all approach and people come out of the training session and they're expected to do things without really being um, having that conversation about, well, why should I do it this way? Right. What if I want to do it that way? So I think that, um, you know, that we know that people use technology in different ways and we know that people are um, depending on the technology that you might be an early adopter or you might be a late adopter or you might never adopt. For example, I, I would struggle to use Instagram. It's just not something that appeals to me. Right. So I'm going to be a late adopter or a never adopter on that one. So you send me to the Instagram training and you're going to have to really convince me of the value of using it. But what an Instagram training session will do is it'll tell you this is how you do it. This is what the communication is. This is how you do a direct message. This is the kind of picture you put up. It's not about the benefits of how it will help me do my job better. Right. And I think that it would be helpful if library administration kind of took a different approach to how we integrated technology into our service delivery. That's a great point. I mean, it sounds like, um, at least from from our experience, or I should say, some of my experiences, you know, we do the training to do the training, and yeah. then sometimes there's not enough follow up to say, you know, did you really receive it? Are you are you using it? Are you nervous about using it? You know, um, does does this apply to your job? You know, we kind of do yeah. the training and then we leave it at, at that. Like we check the box and then that's that's it. Sometimes. Exactly. It's 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 all about checking the box, right? You've got to get all your staff to a training session, however long it takes, however much energy it takes, how much backfill you have to have with library staff to ensure you can continue running the library. You get them all on training, you run them for an hour, half a day, two days, whatever it takes, and then you expect them to utilise that training immediately. Yet there's been no discussion around 
how it impacts their specific job. Because in order for people to change, change happens kind of one person at a time. Mm. So you need to talk to one person at a time yeah. about the technology use and how it impacts on their job. I mean, everybody wants to know. Most people will want to know how they can do better, at, be better at their jobs and be more effective. But we don't tell them that. We tell them how to use a tool. Yeah, you know what, Chris? It sounds like Sally's talking about, uh, we always refer to reference interviews, right? When when patrons come in and we do an interview to see what their issue is and kind of how we can solve it. Exactly. Um, now it sounds like Sally's introducing like a staff interview and almost talking to the staff about what their talents are, what they like to do, what they struggle with, and revolving the jobs that are available around those, that feedback. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think I think that um, it's one of those things where uh, you have to listen as much as you're going to be instructing. Yeah. Very much so. And that's a great analogy. It is, about, it is about having that reference interview with people because it changes a personal thing. It's not a library thing. You know, I will only adopt this tech tool if you can convince me that it's going to help me do my job better. Yeah. And then they have buy-in, right? I mean, tremendous buy-in comes from yep. uh, a new joy yep. to do something you like to do. Yeah. It does take a long time because you've got a lot of staff with different needs and, you know, you have to it, – it's not an easy thing to do. But I think it's um, a different approach to think about when your current approach is obviously not working for everybody. It makes a lot of sense, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a good lead into the next question about the reluctance and resistance to change because I, I know it, it seems to be a, one universal um, – rule in library land is that librarians, no matter where you are in the world, are very reluctant to change. Um, it's just that this, this profession seems to attract people who like things to be a certain way. Uh, so that reluctance and resistance to change seems to always be a struggle for library land. And, you know, it's getting better because we're getting more and more tech to help us with, do what we do, but it's still a challenge. So what are your strategies for introducing change in the name of progress? And, you know, what if this, you know, this is going to be a good, you know, is this going to be a good for the patron and makes your job easier strategy? What happens if that doesn't work? If somebody says, yeah, that's great. This iPad is great and I could do things a lot faster, but I, and I'm going to say the dirtiest words you could say in library land, this is the way we've always <laughs> done it. You know, how do you combat that person? And I'm not necessarily talking about the 60 year old librarian who's five years away from retirement. Um, I'm talking about, you know, because that, I wish I could make that broad generality, but I can't. Because I know some librarians that are in their 60s that love everything about tech. Yeah. And they, I have some, you know, I know some librarians that are in their late 20s, early 30s, and, and are longing for the days of the card catalog when they don't even remember the days of the card catalog. Yep. Um, change is always awkward. It always brings out a fear in people because we like to know what's going on. We like to know that we uh, have some level of control over our lives. We like to know that we feel like we can do a good job and that um, that we know what's going to happen next and what we, what's going to happen after that. So whenever change happens, it throws all of that out the window. There's a whole uncertainty around it which causes anxiety all on its own. But what we don't often address is is, is that anxiety that any change brings. 
you know, we we talk about change as if it's it's a constant, and it is, but we don't talk about how what it makes you feel like and how it um, interrupts your ability to do the best that you can. And I think that, um, you know, one of the strategies that I use all the time, and I've been involved in change management projects in libraries and outside of libraries, and it's about listening to people. It's about that reference interview that we've already talked about, that um, when you listen to people, you, you're listening with the intent to understand, to understand their perspective, to understand their fears, to understand their concerns, and then find a solution that they will be happy with that can move them towards that. Now, I know that you're going to say, well, you know, not everybody's going to change. And that's right. You're not going to get everybody to do it. But if you start out with the right intent, that intent to understand, it becomes a conversation and it's not so much I'm or me, the library administration or whoever's instituting the change is making you do this, which is the way it comes across in a lot of instances. It's about, okay, we want to achieve this thing and this is how we're going to do it. What are, what are your concerns? So, for example, I was working in a public library that was introducing um, RFID, you know, self-service kiosks. Mm -hmm. Do you call them RFID over there? Yep, yeah. Yep, yep. okay, right. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else I'm going to call it. <laughs> um, so we were introducing RFID into the library, self-service kiosks only. We weren't going to be um, issuing for the patron. So we were encouraging 90 plus percent self-service. And most people had never seen a self-service machine before and staff. So it was all rumor, right? This is what I imagine it to be like, oh my God, it's going to be like the self-service at the grocery store or at, at the airport. And I don't like any of those things. Um, you know, I can never find anybody. All of those things that people have in their heads before you've even talked to them about what RFID is in a library situation. So we sent all the staff to another library, which was about an hour away traveling um, in groups so that they could see another library that used RFID so that they could talk to other librarians about RFID so that they could see what how their customers used RFID. Um, and then there was one person who was concerned about um, her specific role, which was um, taking the money, cash and, and daily banking kind of scenarios. And in the RFID um, example in which we were implementing is that people would pay for their fines and their holds through the RFID machine. And so all there would be no staff intervention with um, cash handling. So she was quite concerned about how this would happen, impact on her job. And she's the kind of person who talks about her concerns to everybody. So the whole library was consumed with how banking was going to impact us. <laughs> and, um, you know, that can be pretty tiring for people. So I made the decision that I was going to be the person to listen to the staff member. And so I sat down with her and said, can you show me how you do your daily banking? Can you show me, you know, 
what happens now so that we can try and make it happen in an RFID situation. So every morning for 45 minutes, for two weeks, I went through the banking process with this person so that I knew what she was. She told me everything. She talked me through every single process. I might not have agreed with how she did her banking, but that wasn't the point. It was for her to tell me what we needed to do to move over. And then we managed to get a test machine in so that we could practice banking with it. <laughs> this is, you know, how much work it takes to help a library member change. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we went through the banking process on the RFID machine and we talked about how to get reports. We talked about what would be different. We went back to um, upper management and we talked about what, you know, this is what's going to be different. Do you want to change or not kind of scenarios? However, when we went into RFID, she was my staunchest advocate. Wow. She'd written all of her cash handling and banking procedures out for other people in case she was away. She talked everybody through the process of what banking meant, and she encouraged everybody to use the self-issue machines. Simply because, you took the, simply because you took the time to see it from her perspective, right? Yep. Wow. And if you hadn't done that, it would have been an absolutely tumultuous time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So people congratulated me for listening and for taking that conversation away from them. So that, um, you know, because after a while, you don't know the answers to the questions that staff have because they're the same questions that they're asking, right? So until you can work them through that process and go, okay, show me what you do. Let's look at what it's going to be different. Let's what it's going to look at. Look at what's going to be the same, and work through that process. She knew everything about an RFID machine by the time that RFID machine came into the library. Wow, you demystified it too. Yes, and it you know motivated other staff because she was often the person that would be um, considered reluctant or the slowest person to move things hmm. and because that she moved quite simply and quite easily and they could see you know that it was genuine it wasn't because she was forced to move it was something that she was quite excited about other people came on board quite quite rapidly of course we had to do similar such um, similar listening exercises with other staff but they weren't as intense as that one and they um, you know they could see that we were trying to encourage change to happen without imposing that change on people. Um, not easy at all, but if you take the time, it makes a difference. Yeah, it seems like those types of individ individuals can be very boisterous, right, and tell everybody about their concerns. And, and I bet yes. you when you address their concerns, the, the atmosphere probably changed from um, something that could be very volatile, right, down to something that was more calm and, you know, reassuring. Yes, and um, because she is quite a boisterous person, it is difficult not to be caught up in her conversation. Right. And if her conversation was now a positive conversation about change, it's difficult not to be caught up in that, right? Yeah, and it's a great conversation to have in the staff lounge, right? When all these people yeah. are agreeing that it's a positive change, yeah. Yeah. Right. 
And so, you know, we, we work hard on that project to um, talk people through their concerns, to talk about, well, okay, when this machine is here, where do I stand? What am I doing when I'm standing here on this shift? And why am I doing it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and what, what if somebody comes and says this to me? So, you know, we tried to practice all of those things in advance for different people, not for everybody. So it wasn't a training session. It was a conversation with individual staff about various things. And there's more than one way to do things, right? So it's not like this is the process. It's like, so what if you wanted to do this with a person? Would you feel comfortable doing that and standing here doing that? Where would you move them? And we talked about the whole workflow and and how it would work with customers from a very personal perspective. Wow, that's a great example. What do you think, Chris? That's great. And, you know, the, the one thing that, that really caught my attention the whole time you're talking about this interaction, you're not a trainer trying to plow through a lesson plan. No. Because that, I think, is the biggest problem when you bring, especially when you bring in an outside trainer. They have an agenda and they have a PowerPoint and they have a lesson plan. Yeah. And if you don't get it, well, you know what? You're either being dragged by your, the scruff of your neck along with the rest of us or yep. you start staring at your phone and you're out. Yep. It's about, it's not about the lesson plan. It's about the end goal. You know, what do you want to achieve at the end? So another example is about um, back in the day is, you know, when e-readers were these technological nightmares and um, different e-readers, different e-reading services and people and staff being really anxious when somebody came in with an e-reader that they hadn't seen before. So I ran e-reader training around the country for library staff and it was about confidence showing them that every single e-reader largely is the same because how are you going to see various e-readers all at once mm -hmm. and showing them a process that would largely work on any e-reader but showing them that they can move in their confidence levels between that so every session started out with a line up against the wall on a scale of one to ten in terms of how confident you are using an e-reader some people were trying to get out the window because they weren't confident. <laughs> <laughs> and some people were proudly, you know, standing where they wanted to stand and felt proud about whether they were a five or a six because they had moved, um, you know, over their learnings. So my whole aim as a session was to teach them that at the end of the session, I hope you've moved closer towards the other end of the wall during that session. You might not know everything, but if you're a wee bit more confident than when you were when you started, that's a win. Yeah. You know, that kind of scenario. And you take them through the exercises and the lesson plans, but it's all about confidence rather than um, ticking off the box that you know how to do this. Yeah. And that's where the technology folks need to take a little bit of a back seat, right? Because we're so used to doing it and walking up, fixing the problem, and then walking away. Yeah. And not allowing them to be part of the solution and showing them what you did, how you did it, or, or involving them in the training when you're getting new devices or, or things like that. Yep. And also, um, you know, they find other ways to do things in training and to celebrate that rather than go, oh, hang on, you've got way off track. We've got to come back and do <laughs> yeah. this now. Yeah. <laughs> and you go, oh, look at you. <laughs> <laughs> Shining over there going way ahead and doing things that we've never seen before. 
Wow, I tell you what, I love those examples, Sally. What a what a fantastic uh, uh, solution for a couple of unique issues. Um, yeah. So kind of switching gears a little bit, um, talking about Twitter and conferences seem to go together nowadays uh, with the hashtags and live tweeting conferences. Um, we certainly have participated in this at computers and libraries here in the States and with the New York Library Association conference here in New York. Um, tell those who have not yet converted to this concept why it has become part of the whole experience. Um. I'm a Twitter fan, right? And I really like Twitter because I'm often working on my own and this is my only way to get professional development um, without having to travel and without having to spend any money. So I am on Twitter quite frequently and seeing what's happening around the world in librarianship and in other things that I'm interested in. So when you have a Twitter, con uh, when you have a conference and people are tweeting at conference, you get all of that inside goss without actually being there. So you're getting other people's perspectives that you might never get at conference because you don't, you're too shy to speak to anyone or, you know, you've, you've got to rush in and rush out and you never see, ha have an opportunity to have a conversation. So Twitter gives you the ability to um, share to learn other people's perspectives about what they're hearing, but also to hear their view of the um, presentation. And um, I've done quite well, re not recently, because I haven't been to any conferences live for quite a while. But when I used to go to conferences, I used to do live tweeting. And the perspective of live tweeting is completely different to when you're uh, reading the tweets and not being at the conference. So if you are at conference and you are involved on Twitter and you live tweet, you are learning a huge amount of stuff that people take for granted. You're learning how to condense ideas into 280 characters. Hmm. You're learning how to uh, do that really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> You're learning how to listen and write at the same and condense all of that at the same time. You're learning about um, how to get things out of PowerPoint slides and really condense messages so that you can convey something. You're learning about the power of um, imagery and you know taking photos of the slides so that you can add more to that story without using your uh, character limits, all of that kind of thing. Plus, you're learning about the content. You know that whole kind of listening and absorbing and um, reflecting on it all in one tweet. So that is what I think the power of live tweeting is at Twitter conference, uh, at conferences. And um, I also know a librarian who live blogs, which I think is even more amazing. So every session that uh, Deborah Fitchett, who's at the University of Canterbury, every, uh, yeah, University of Canterbury? Don't quote me on what university she's at. Um, <laughs> Don't worry, we won't. <laughs> university, of, no, I'm not going to go there now. So whenever she attends a conference, she will blog every session, and within an hour, that session is up on her blog. Wow. So you will see the summary, the main points, and her perspective within an hour. Wow. And that's just, like, amazing professional development that you don't even need to pay for. Wow. You ready to do no? that, Chris? We can do that at the next Computers and Libraries conference. Yeah. <laughs> that's a skill. I don't think my brain can move that fast. I don't think so either. No, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> that is, that's a crazy skill. Yeah. And, and live, 
live tweeting is also a crazy skill. It's not as intense as live blogging, but it's, you know, it's a pretty impressive skill. So I'm always grateful that people who go to conferences will tweet the sessions that they attend and their perspectives and um, encourage that conversation for those people who are left behind. Because, you know, on Twitter, there's a whole hashtag about left behind at conferences, especially in Australia and New Zealand. Do you have that in America? Mm, we sure. have a conference tag and at the end it says left behind I haven't seen too much of that no I haven't oh. seen that it's so, something for us uh, to start right Chris yeah <laughs> <laughs> so at the recent um, Asia Pacific Library Conference which was uh, at the August sometime there was the hashtag for the library conference and then there was a hashtag for those people who were left behind who weren't at the library conference, but we're following along at Twitter, on Twitter. So you could have, you know, live feed and all those people who were reminiscing about how they wish they were there and, oh, can you ask this question and can you go and do this for, you know, can you, you know, make me feel as if I'm not so left behind? Can you get an image of the slideshows? Where do I get the links? All of that kind of stuff. Sure. So it's yeah. kind of become a, um, quite a good live, way to get library professional development and other professional development because all conferences do it not just library conferences and what's nice about twitter too when you're in a conference is it's an icebreaker so maybe you know totally you, you you're you're at a conference and there's somebody there who's famous in in the library world context yeah. and maybe you don't have the guts to go up to that person but yet you yep. can tweet them while you're sitting you know say hey you know at bob johnson five to whatever um i see you're in the third row i can't i couldn't hear what he, that guy said can you repeat what he can you write down what he said that's an icebreaker for sure and then at the end at the end of that that particular you know um presentation that's the icebreaker yeah i'm the guy that couldn't hear you yeah, know well, that's funny i mean i've yeah. done it a few times at conferences where it actually turned into somebody who wanted to be on you know people who would like to be on the podcast so you know it's a nice way to form that kind of stuff out too but Twitter always gets a bad rap for being like this dark, horrible, terrible place. And it can be. Um, but in oh, terms yeah. of, of library land and what it's effectively used for, I think the people who created Twitter would be happy to see how librarians are using it. <laughs> totally. Um, and I completely agree. It's a great icebreaker. Um, and, you know, in, our, in my part of the world, we have, Twitter meetups but during conference. Do you have those? Where, I, I um, think they've started that, yeah. Yeah. And that's really a nice conference thing too, especially if it's very at the very beginning of the conference because then you've got your pals that you can smile to and you can talk to on Twitter and, in, and at the conference because you've met them at the Twitter meetup and, um, you know, kind of feel as if you know people. I've also noticed that on Twitter that people are starting to put hashtags into their profile names of conferences that they're attending. So you can do a search on the hashtag and their names will come up. So you can kind of uh, prepare yourself for conversations with people and, you know, introduce and see who else is going to the same conference. Yeah, that's something I haven't heard of before. That's actually an interesting uh, concept that you can add those hashtags. Yeah. It, it becomes part of your profile. Exactly. Yeah, really so it becomes part of your handle where you use a hashtag and then you can see other people who are going to the same conference beforehand. 
um, you can start conversations with them or, you know, make a, make an effort to talk to them or meet up with them when you're there. And, you know, it's it, it's interesting talking about that. You actually were talking about the concept of having a Twitter conference where, yeah. you know, where you're doing the, the conference on Twitter, you know, taking, yeah. it's taking twi Twitter one step further. Are you hearing this, Twitter? Hello. <laughs> Tell, explain if you can give more detail into that whole concept because this this could you know we always there's always that phrase we use in libraries about bridging the gap imagine about bridging the gap not just with let's say you know having ala in this in the states and people who are in new zealand australia uh or europe who can't make it and again hashtag left behind um <laughs> you know where if you have a twitter conference the only issue is going to be whether or not you're sleeping because it's the other side of the planet yeah but you'll still catch it right sure because it'll all be on your hashtag yeah yeah it's, i'm quite excited about this quietly because i don't really want to put in the effort quite just yet but i am excited about the whole idea of twitter conferences so how the way in which it works and there are some twitter conferences that are happening now um, and have happened for three or four years. It's not a new thing. So um, I think the first people who started off Twitter conferences was the World Seabird Union. And uh, seabird scientists who live in all these remote places um, learning and doing research about seabirds. So the effort of travel and getting to a conference is really difficult. So they have, I think they're in their fourth year of running Twitter conferences. And they have streams and everything, you know, multi-day conferences in which the seabird scientists present their research in a Twitter format for other people to share and ask questions and learn from each other. So the way in which that conference works is the Twitter format is that you have 15 minutes to present your research. You, have, you can do that in six tweets. So the first tweet is an introduction. You have four tweets for your body, and then you have a summary tweet. You can put in videos, links, GIFs, whatever you like, posters, images, etc., and you present your presentation in that format. So you've got 15 minutes. And then the rest of the um, people who are following along on a Twitter conference can ask you questions, and you can have conversations, etc. So imagine if you did that in library land. Imagine how cool that would be that one, you only have to do a 15 minute presentation. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have so to stand in front of anybody. Preparation and research is a wee bit you know, less, less intense than normal. <laughs> 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 and um, you can do it from the comfort of your own home. And you can share your research and your, um, your experiences with others who are interested. Now, I think it's particularly interesting, not necessarily from that whole kind of ALA aspect, but from people who have uh, specialised in specific areas. And so getting a conference, you're never going to get your numbers to break even. You're never going to get enough presenters who can meet in the same place. But on Twitter, they can all get together and talk about it. Yeah. So one particular example, which has happened in the last year, is um, a museum of underwear. <laughs> <laughs> I like where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> Quite niche, right? Yeah. It's called 
it's called the Underpinnings Museum. And they had a Twitter conference, an academic Twitter conference on the history of underwear. So people were presenting their research and showing images and talking about stories around that, things around corsets and night nightwear and um, stockings and, and all those kind of things. Now imagine how cool that is if you're an academic with such a niche perspective on your research and you get to talk to other people from around the world on the history of underwear. I think that's just amazing that you can do that in 15 minutes, cost you nothing, and everybody who is interested can learn from that. They don't have to pay anything. I just think that's so cool. There's no airfare. There's no getting dressed up. There's no having to listen to speeches. Yeah. So um, you can, you know, you can go all out and have keynote speakers who do a wee bit of a longer tweet session. Some people have still have that fifteen minute um, time frame for a presentation, but they might have more tweets. So six is probably the minimum. And I think 12 is the maximum that I've seen. But imagine trying to, how many sessions you can have in a, in a session. You break for morning tea breaks, et cetera. You can have a global um, conference in terms of time zones. It's not going to matter because people can catch up. They also suggest that you don't have to present your session live. You can schedule it like you can on Twitter when schedule your tweets. So just because you're speaking in a slot doesn't mean you actually have to be there. <laughs> I mean, you can just schedule it. How cool is that? That's that very is really cool. cool. That is amazing. And you know what? It might really get to the meat and potatoes of what somebody's trying to say too, right? Exactly. Instead of having to – like uh, we've been to a couple of conferences and Chris can definitely attest where you know, you sit down for an hour and 45 minutes and you literally listen to seven minutes of good quality presentation. Yep. Exactly. Now, there's this other Twitter conference that I want to share with you, which I think is extra cool, is that it's the Royal Society of Chemistry. Pretty hmm. niche. Yeah. What they have is that they have a poster conference. So you know how you have poster, com uh, poster sessions at conferences? Well, mm -hmm. this is a Twitter poster conference. You don't even have to register to be on it. So anybody who's interested can... Um, be part of the poster conference so you don't have to be part of a schedule and what they do is that you post your poster in an image you use the hashtag and you're available for people to ask you questions that is just so simple yeah why go to all this trouble of organizing you know the logistics of a conference and what that means it's and what these what the royal society of chemistry did is that they had winners so they had winners based on engagement they had winners based on um, the quality of your research and um, so they had I think about 12 different sections of on chemistry in which you could present your poster now that is niche oh, and there are so many niche aspects in librarianship which could benefit from a global conversation and you know it's funny that you mentioned the um the global end of things because what and we've said this before on the podcast regardless if you're in Auckland New York L A Sydney Saskatchewan or wherever you are 
in libraries, we're doing the same thing. We may yep. have different styles. We may have different ways of going about doing it, but we're still doing exactly the same thing. So think about, in, in a global sense, how one of these Twitter conferences is a playing field leveler for everyone. Exactly. So it exactly. just makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it means that um, you get to share your expertise with other people who are interested in your expertise. And, um, you know, you learn that there are different tweaks that you could have or there are similarities that you're already doing and how you can build on that experience uh, through Twitter and by, in most cases, by pure chance that you've come across somebody who's actually interested in the same thing that you're interested in. Mm. You know, that's pretty serendipitous. <laughs> Most to definitely. Know sure. who's interested in corsets, for example. Yeah, sure. I mean, just imagine the collaboration you could get, right? I mean, Chris, exactly. from people, and you wouldn't have to do one conference in one small regional area. You know, you'd be no. anywhere in the world. Yeah. No. So imagine if you had a conference on um, improving the digital literacy of library stuff, you know, and all the different things that people do to encourage library staff to share their digital literacy skills with their customers and their members and their community, but also what they do internally within a library system and to um, offer that professional development. I think that's cool. Sounds like a great idea. Definitely. So um, kind of changing gears a little bit, Sally, let's take some time and talk about your blog, thelibraryboss.com. Uh -huh. um, so how did this come to you and what does it do? And talk about the personality quiz, if you could, please. Sure. Well, um, so the libraryboss.com is kind of an evolution of me, I suppose. And that I started out um, wanting to help people be the best that they can be and running that in a face-to-face -face situation. And then, um, you know, I moved that online and offered online digital literacy courses for library staff um, that they could do at their workplace. And so that we went through about a thousand people did those courses in New Zealand and Australia. And from there, it moved more towards the... Um, so those kind of courses were more about competencies digital literacy competencies around um, creative commons, copyright, uh, search tech, not necessarily search techniques, but um, evaluating critical thinking, all of that kind of stuff. And so the library boss is in the next step in that evolution, which was about confidence in people and generating the confidence because I, I believe that it doesn't actually matter whether you can do it or not. It's about whether you're willing to try to do it. And so the library boss is all about that confidence and giving people the boost and the support that they need to try to um, utilize their um, digital literacy skills and to try and, and use new tech in different ways or whatever it might be. So it's about supporting people from a confidence point of view. And so that's kind of how it came about. And I was thinking, well, Okay, so I've started with the hard stuff again. <laughs> <laughs> how am I going to make this work and, and what does it look like and how do I explain to people that 
when we're so often caught in competencies and knowing how to do stuff, how do we change it? So it's not about how to do stuff. It's about are you willing to try and do you have the confidence to take that a step further than what you've got now? And how can we support you to, to flourish in that environment? So I developed, um, I thought a personality quiz would be quite a good idea because it's about you as a person and how you, your strengths and your, um, your weaknesses, but also mainly how you operate as a person. You know, your experiences and the things that you do are part of who you are and the fabric of you. And it's got nothing to do with your technical abilities. It's about your approach to things. So the quiz is a personality quiz based on what I think are the six different kinds of um, qualities that I think you need for just to be digitally literate and to continue to be digitally literate because there's not an end point, right? You've got to keep going and keep learning and keep keep improving and trying new things. So um, I created a quiz after a lot of research around our personality um, strengths and weaknesses around uh, quizzes and around um, growth mindsets and digital literacy and all of those kind of things. And I made a quiz which was holistic. So it's not a quiz about your job and it's not a quiz about how you do things at work. It's a quiz about how you learn and how you um, solve problems and how you make decisions, which happens in life. So I reckon digital literacy, you know, the approach that you bring to digital literacy is the approach that you do in life. If you're a risk taker naturally, you're most likely to be a risk taker when you use digital things. If you're curious um, naturally, then you're most likely to be curious when you use digital things. So I wanted a quiz that kind of highlighted that superpower, that digital superpower that you have and utilize and celebrated those strengths and showed you how you can use more of that in librarianship. So does that explain it? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, so how did, so the whole inspiration for Library Boss, um, so where, where did that come to you in the middle of the night or where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> you woke up in the middle of the night and said, I have to create this. This is it. It's not, it's kind of something that I worked on over quite a long period because I knew that I wanted to change our thinking from um, competencies to um, celebrating the strengths that people have. And I didn't quite know how to work around that. Um, so I kind of had to look at a whole variety of things and kind of gel it gelled together over a period of time. The library boss is kind of um, me making a stand in, in terms of its name and kind of suggesting that everybody can be the library boss because we have the strengths to do that and we have different unique skills and, and the, the type of leadership that we would have would differ. So there isn't one way to be a library boss that, you know, we each bring our unique perspectives to it. And um, it's something that's easy to remember and easy to spell. So, you know, <laughs> those are all very helpful. 
<laughs> so one thing that you focus on with the Library Boss is digital literacy, uh, which is yep. what we've been talking about the whole time, basically. Um, and it's, it is so crucial in all that we do in, in libraries, not just as librarians, but as humans on the planet these days. I mean, we're tethered to our phones or, you know, we're sitting in an airport looking at our iPad or, you know, so, and somebody had mentioned this, this interesting story where they were talking to teens and young people in their 20s. They're, they asked them, what, what, what kind of TV do you watch? And they said, well, uh, we don't really watch TV. So yeah. they, the, the, the perception was meaning what kind of TV do you watch sitcoms, do you watch dramas? But the, the teens in the early 20s people saw it more like, do you watch a Samsung? Do you watch a Vizio? Do you watch a 42-inch? <laughs> and like, we just don't watch them at all. We watch things on our phones and on our tablets, which was yeah. a complete um, disconnect between terms of art. And I think that's a direct result of us being, uh, maybe the younger generations being, having a different perception of what television is, hardware versus a genre. Um, but in terms of in, in the whole idea of digital literacy, so people who are Bob's age or my age, you know, digital literacy, for us, we're fortunate enough that it came easy for us. But some of our friends maybe we grew up with, it's not so simple. And definitely for our parents' generation, it's extremely difficult. So tell us, in terms of libraries, how you can introduce the concept of digital literacy get the interest for those that aren't interested in it and motivate people to be digitally literate. Now, I know before we talked about speaking to them, not speaking at them, but in, in terms of what you do with the library boss, what would be your recommendation to, to kind of bring those folks into the fold? Tricky. <laughs> um, I think that First of all, digital literacy is about how you use to, um, how you, what you need in order to live your life well and to be happy about your life and, and how you live it. And so it is a life skill. And we know that, um, you know, as librarians, we know how pervasive digital literacy, uh, digital things are. And we know that um, not everybody is caught up with that. Um, you know, large proportions of my family are not online. And I spend a lot of time talking to them on the phone, which is, you, you mean know, the one that hangs on a wall, places. right? Yeah, place yeah. a call. Yeah. And, you know, in some people's lives, that's very unusual. I even write and post letters to people in the mail using the postal service, <laughs> you know? With a piece of paper, um, yeah. Yeah. Having to explain things like that is something that we think is unusual now, but there are still people in my life who I do that for in, in order to make them do that. Now, um, that doesn't mean to say that they um, don't use digital tools. It just means that they use things in quite specialized ways. So they'll text and they'll use the phone and they'll understand the internet, but you know, I don't need to know anything else, so I'm not going to go there. 
So the way in which I think you should introduce and motivate people to uh, be digitally literate is that you've got to make it personal. If you can't make anything resonate with a person, then they're not going to do it. So, you know, do you want to talk to your kids who live in London? Yeah. Or do you just want to show them photos? Or, you know, do you want to phone them and place a call and, you know, talk to them about what they want to do and how they want to do it? And so you make it personal. Sometimes you can't find that personal connection and I that's fine. If it's not going to motivate them to do it, then, you know, no point trying to bang your head against the wall making them do it. So make, make it personal. The second thing I would suggest is to focus on one thing. Don't try and tell them the whole world about Facebook. <laughs> Just show them how to upload the, upload the image or, you know, do a messenger or whatever it might be. Don't introduce complexity just because you need, you know, you feel that people need to know more. Just focus on the one thing that they need to do. If they ask questions, then, you know, expand their world a wee bit more, but don't do it without asking, you know, without them showing an interest in, in what to do. Um, so make it personal, focus on one thing. The third thing is to keep it fluff free. So um, that's about um, getting them to achieve the goal as quickly as possible. It's not about introducing the whole background of how this came to be and this is how you do it and or you could do it this way or you could do it that way. Just keep it as fluff-free as possible. To the point, show them how to get to where they need to go to. Also, you know, one of the things that we talked about for before is that we often take over and go, this is how you do it. Click, mm. click, click, yeah. click, overflows, <laughs> etc. Yeah. Because we want to be helpful, right? We want to get it over and done with. We want them to get to their goal as quickly as possible. Well, I'd suggest that you be less helpful and that you get them to take the lead and get them to initiate the questions. You ask questions to make sure that they understand and that they um, are processing why things are happening and not necessarily just remembering the procedure. You're almost introducing a Socratic method to this. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so tell me how you post, how you post a message on Facebook. You tell me. And then yeah, it almost becomes like John Houseman from the paper chase or something. Well, I think it's I think it's about that relationship that you have with the person. And you know, you're working at their speed, you're working within their world, you're working within their time frame and what they want to achieve. You're not trying to impose your knowledge on them. You know, you're trying to um, make it work for them so that they will repeat it and continue to do it. And if it's not within their world and their time frame and how they approach, uh, how they see things, then it's really difficult. I have a lot of trouble explaining to people, um, you know, how to use their, their phone if they've moved from a, a so-called dumb phone to a smartphone. And how complicated that is when you can't see the buttons to type anymore. 
<laughs> How yeah. do you get the money? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, you've got to try and work within the speed that they have. If what they want to do is to upload an image to Facebook Messenger and to, to Messenger, then you've got to get them through the whole button process first and and want them to get past that process so that they can um, you know, talk on Messenger. I love how you said uh when taking one thing at a time, you know, because yep. conventional instruction is like, let's talk about the nine things that you have to do and the 75 ways there are to do it. Yep. Right. And, or, or going to buy a new phone. When you walk into a carrier and you buy a new phone, they show you everything the phone can do before you leave because that's their job. Yep. And yep. you leave going, well, now I have 45 apps. I only want to use one. How do I make a phone yep. call? Yep. And, you know, and, so, and yeah. So when I was talking with a family member about buying a new phone, I said, where do you want to place your phone? You know, how do you want to use your phone? Do you take, want to take it with you everywhere? It's like that reference interview, right? Do you yeah. want to take it with you everywhere? Do you want to leave it in the drawer and only use it for emergencies? Do you want to, um, have you got a, a nifty little place in your handbag to place it in? Or how are you going to carry it? And so when I said that, I said, well, the important thing then is, how does it feel in your hand? You're not going to use it if it's too clunky. You're not going to use it if you can't see the screen and you don't know how to enlarge the, the text. Right. So get a look at when you're in the shop, pick, see if you can pick it up, see if you can see the screen, <laughs> <laughs> see, you know, and read what's on the screen. And if it feels nice in your hand, and just check to see if it fits in that nice little pocket that you've got in your bag. <laughs> <laughs> That makes total sense. It's exactly like what we do when we ask somebody what you know, they say, um, configure a computer for me. What kind of computer should I buy? And yeah. the first thing we say is, what are you going to do with it? Because if you're going to do big, heavy video editing and photo editing, you might want a Mac or a very expensive laptop with a lot of software. But yeah. if you're going to use like a, you know, Google Chrome to check some email or maybe visit a couple of news websites, you can get a Chromebook. You know, So that unique perspective and the interview process is, is just such a great way to look at it. Yeah, and you know, people are often influenced by what they see in advertising. So they'll go, oh, I want an iPad. And you go, why <laughs> do you want an iPad? Yeah. And he goes, well, I want to email people. Okay, then you don't need to spend that much right. on, okay. on a device. You can just get the cheapest one that you see in this discount store, and it will do that. Um what you want to look for are these particular characteristics and not necessarily the iPad. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. funny too, because when I help seniors, especially with their technology, I always, instead of inundating them with a hundred different things, I, the first question I ask is, what do you want to do with it? And a lot of yeah. times the answer is, I'm not sure my kids got this for me. Mm. Yeah. So then you show them yeah. the things that they're familiar with. Let's set your email service up. Now, this is how you send a message. This is how you read a message. This is how you attach a picture. Oh, I can take pictures with this? So now yeah. you let them lead, and you're the one exactly. that's running alongside and just showing them as they're going along. Well, let me show you how to take a picture. Let's take this picture. Yeah. And now when you touch this, you can now send it as a text message. Wait, I can text message with this? Tell me yeah. about that. So you let yeah. them take the lead as opposed to what Bob was saying, being in the shop. And now you just got the newest iDevice or whatever you have, and they showed you a hundred different things. Downloaded three hundred apps. You have no memory left in your device, 
and you yeah. walk out with a headache and thinking you want to throw this thing in the middle of traffic. Yeah, and they'll be confused, and then they'll meet you at the library to ask you about the phone, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, and um, that's exactly right. Those are the kinds of um, interactions we need to have with our community, but it's also the kind of interactions we need to have with our staff because our staff need to know how to lead people and let them lead us through a conversation and at what point to you know bring up the different things because often what we do in libraries is that we teach digital skills but we don't necessarily teach digital literacy and which is part about asking questions you know critical thinking and um adding in those extra bits as people ask questions like so you say i can text with this really let me know you know and the person has to be able to figure out a way to lead people towards those questions should they want to ask them. Well, it makes a lot of sense too. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to sell somebody something they don't need. And as far as dealing with, with patrons in their tech, we're not in that business. And I, I can, I always get angry when I see somebody walk in a senior and they have the latest and the greatest and they don't need it and they've been oversold or even worse. I don't know how it is down in New Zealand, but um, some of the, the carriers that shall remain nameless will say, well, you can buy this phone, but for another $50, we can give you this tablet too. And now, now they have a tablet that they have no idea that this thing even existed. Now they have it. They don't know what to do with it. And they feel obligated to learn how to use it because it was given to them. And sometimes they don't even know that they're getting charged another 10 or $15 on top of their data plan for even having it. Yeah. That's right. Yep, totally. And, and, and you can't bring it back. They won't take it back. And half the time that the tablet doesn't work. No. So they'll give it to a family member who wants it and go, oh, thank you. Take it away. <laughs> I don't need it. <laughs> you have it. <laughs> yeah. Well, what did you get this thing for? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take it back to the store. Well, they won't take it back. And now you're stuck That's with that extra 10 or 15. Years, yeah, you're stuck with that that extra $15 every month. Yeah. So. And um, you know, things digital things are very confusing because they don't come with instructions like they used to. You know, you used to buy a toaster and it came with instructions. Mm, that's right. <laughs> well, Which way to know, put the bread a, in, right? <laughs> yeah. A phone doesn't come with instructions about how to type or how to send a message, or what app, or, you know, how to search the app store. Um, And people who are used to learning from instructions find it very, very difficult. And libraries, you know, there are many library staff who are like that, that they can't, they don't understand the questions that they should be asking because it's not straight in front of them that, you know, in an instruction booklet. You know, and it's yeah. funny, you brought up another memory that I had when I think it was iOS 7 came out. It was the big change. They had changed from the the, the, the more detailed graphics to the flat kind uh-huh. of look. And I was teaching uh, seniors, and they all said the same thing. Go, There's no damn book. How do yeah. I learn this? Yeah. And then, then I, I made one fatal mistake once by saying, well, if you go to the book app, Oh, no. <laughs> There's actually the instructions are in the book app. 
Well, how yeah, do I work the damn thing and read the book at the same time? Yeah. It was just, it, that's how you know you've stepped in it. And it not only have you stepped in it, but it went between your toes. Mm. And, you know, it's going to take a long time to clean that off your foot. <laughs> <laughs> and that you've lost the group and now you have to try to get the group back. That's right. Um, and it's very, very difficult and it's very time consuming. Yeah. So uh, we have to thank you because this has been such a great discussion about, and it's almost been a therapy session in, in, in some respects <laughs> because you're, you're preaching for, at least for me and Bob, you know, you're preaching to the converted where, you know, we, we see where the mistakes are made and, you know, sometimes we're in a position where we could say, ah, eh, that's not the way to do it. And other times you're not in that position because maybe it's, you know, somebody who's, you know, your superior, but this is, this is very therapeutic for me. I don't know. Bob, you feel the same way, right? It's very inspiring. Yeah, it's very positive. Outlook, <laughs> you know, and I think, Sally, you're very, very inspirational. And our, our viewers, are, our listeners are going to love it. So, so yeah. That's so, the intention, right? You've got to feel good about what you do. That's right. Absolutely. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we are going to hit Sally with our top 10 library questions or the 032 list, which is the Dewey top the Dewey number for top 10 lists, and like we always do, um, we have to give credit to Melanie Cardone from the Longer Public Library for coming up with the, um, the name for our list. And although Sally doesn't work in a library anymore, we're just going to wing it like we always do. And uh, we'll see how this goes. So we'll be back in just a minute. back with Sally Pifaringi. Did I get it right again? You did well. Okay. Uh, who, who will be, <laughs> I tried. Who will be our next participant in our 032 list. The questions in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, an informative library-related news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com. Visit their site because they educate and inform the library world on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. Okay. Are you ready? <laughs> These are going to be, yes, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you want to be when you were a child? Um, hmm. I went through a lot of things, but I think the thing that captured my attention the most was that I wanted to be a wildlife ranger. <laughs> and then I wanted wow. to work in a wildlife park. That's a great answer. Have giraffes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a first. That is a first. That's pretty. That's, that's pretty, a first. I like the answer. That's a very cool answer. I was quite taken with giraffes. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is your first memory of a library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? I think, I think there are two memories. My first memory of, um, oh, I was probably about eleven or twelve. I don't know if I went to the library before then. And I, at school, we were told that we had to go to the library to complete our homework. You couldn't complete your homework without going to the library. And we had to go to the town library, not the school library. And 
although I knew where the town library was, I don't think I had been there before then. Um, and so mum took me to the town library and we did my homework. The first, um, and so I, I don't know if it was the first time I went there, but I remember I had to do some kind of homework on like plants. And I found this amazing, a book that I thought was amazing that had hand-drawn illustrations of plants that I knew, you know, like dandelions and <laughs> buttercups and, you know, all those things you see on your lawn. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, they had hand-drawn illustrations of these things and it looked exactly like flowers that I knew. And I was pretty impressed by that. Um, more impressed than by photographs of um, plants you know what I liked the drawings of those and so I, I think I was pretty um, self-reliant in the library just browsed the shelves you know tried the catalogue and just did a variety of things so I don't know how good I was at doing my homework <laughs> because I don't remember asking any <laughs> librarian for help and I don't remember any of the librarians um so that was one memory. The other memory was that um, when I was at Intermediate, about 11 or 12, is that I wanted to learn how to um, speak Māori. And the only way in which you could do that is if you went, well, if you wanted to do it in a formal teaching situation, was if you went to um, classes at night, you know, the community education kind of classes that you have in um, schools and things. So I went with my mum and my dad, because they all wanted to learn Māori as well, and um, it was held in the school library. And um, we would sit and learn about how to speak Māori in the school library. And I don't actually remember going to the school library for anything else. <laughs> <laughs> okay so the next question is when did you decide to work in a library and if it wasn't your first career path because many librarians choose that uh as a second career path uh what was that first career path um so working in a library was my first career path outside um after finishing university and that was at the Marae Library that I spoke about earlier, where I was the sole charge librarian doing library studies and trying to figure out how to catalogue books in a system that I knew nothing about. Um, and, you know, gaining support from lots of other people practicing librarianship in a whole range of different types of libraries. So it was quite a broad experience working in libraries. Um, and I did, however, and about 10 years into my career, stop working at libraries because I found that I was tired of librarianship and I didn't know what I wanted to do and I didn't want to be a library manager. So what do you do? If you're not a library manager, what do you, how do you progress? And I didn't like any of the things that, <laughs> that I could possibly do. And so I quit libraries um, and went and worked in other industries. So I was a trainer for a mystery shopping company where I trained mystery shoppers on how to stealthily go into a shop and ask questions. Oh, wow. Like reference interview questions. And I sold um, 
IFTPOS paper, you know, paper that you get from electronic transactions, uh, like at the grocery shops. Okay. So I sold receipt paper, yeah, that's what you'd call it, mm-hmm. and um, did a sales job there. And I also volunteered for the Project Management Institute, which is a professional association for project managers. And I was the um, branch manager, I think you might have called it, for Auckland. And we had monthly events for about 200 people each month. And then after that, I realized that in all of my conversations outside of libraries, I was talking about libraries. (laughs) (laughs) So um, although my head had left libraries, my heart hadn't. And I came back. And wow, started amazing. finding heroes because I didn't want, still didn't want to be a library manager. Wow, that's a great, that's a great history, huh? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, who very would you varied. S- yes, very varied, like most of ours. Yeah, very yeah. varied. <laughs> um, who would you say is your favorite fictional librarian? I don't have one. I cannot think of a fictional librarian that appeals to me. I don't know. I drew a blank on that one. That's a fair answer. <laughs> and we've never had that answer before. <laughs> I'll always be first. <laughs> Sounds that way, yeah. So what would you be doing if you were not working or working in the library field? So we kind of covered this a little bit with how you kind of went outside, but kind of like this is kind of like one of those questions where you know, if you could be doing anything, what would you be doing kind of thing? Well, currently I don't work in a library. Currently I'm a project manager. So, and I love being a project manager because that's solving problems on a deadline. I just think that's great. <laughs> um, so I, <laughs> I work at a university and I work in what's called the Centre for Learning and Teaching. So it's kind of like the area that supports lecturers in their professional development. And one of the, my project that I'm working on till the end of this year is around determining what software the university should use to um, record lectures and to record parts of lectures and tutorials for students. So that's what I'm doing. And I really, really like it because I get to see a whole different side of education and our projects and solving problems and there's quite a lot of similarities between that and librarianship and um how we do things so yeah quite like that sounds like you're definitely in the right place (laughs) yeah yeah i'm you know like i i do like helping people solve problems and i do like the the adrenaline rush of being on a deadline um, and I like cutting out all that complexity that goes with problems and um, just cutting that path straight through and going, well, let's try this and see what happens. So what would you say is your favorite section of the library? Mm. Um, I think I have lots of favorite sections. Um, I quite like reading... I actually quite like browsing. I like to see books on the shelves so that I can browse rather than pack them, you know, so that I can um, serendipitously find something that 
I've never thought about before. So probably that's probably more in the non-fiction section, but I actually quite like doing that in the fiction section as well. You know, I went through this phase where I read everything in w, uh, X, Y, and Z. <laughs> Author surnames with X, Y, and Z because I thought they were pretty unusual. <laughs> and I wanted to see what they would write that might be different to people who are in the A, Bs, and Cs. <laughs> So you get a much more broader international perspective in X, Y, and Z, let me tell you. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So you, if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to the library? Oh. I would add more enthusiastic librarians. <laughs> people who are enthusiastic about helping people, about working within the community, about sharing their knowledge and their skills proactively, and um, generally uh, helping people achieve what they want to achieve. And that costs quite a lot of money. Chris, we've done 53 episodes, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, that's by far the best answer. I love it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, because it makes sense. Because if you do that, then then the influence that you have on everything else is just it just it just cascades down. Yeah, yeah. And I'm more about librarians than about libraries. No. You know, I think librarians are pretty cool and they should be supported and we should encourage um, enthusiastic and motivated librarians to go out there and, and flourish. Absolutely agree. Bravo. <laughs> so what do you absolutely love about your library? The fact that I can access it online. <laughs> <laughs> 24 hours whenever I want. And that I can order a book and pick it up or I can read it online. I'm, I'm a pretty heavy user of online services. And and all kinds of things. Um, it's very, very cool that as part of an academic library that is well-resourced, you know, academic institution with a well-resourced library that I can access databases to satisfy my curiosity. And um, as a member of a public library that I can, you know, read stuff online without having to wait for it to open. Okay, I don't know if you're going to have a great answer to this next one. It's one of my favorite questions. But uh, you can pull upon all of your experience uh, from working with libraries. What is the weirdest thing, not necessarily the worst thing, but what is the weirdest thing that's ever happened in a library when you were working there? And remember, we have a non-explicit rating on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't think of any weird things. I think I have a high tolerance for weird <laughs> I don't I drew a blank on that one as well it was kind of like yeah that's not so weird no that's not so weird <laughs> I think you know when you work in libraries you see all kinds of different things and they surprise you and they delight you and they horrify you and they you know <laughs> make you scream and they wish you weren't on duty that day and all of those kinds of things. I was just going to say Chris it sounds like uh, she's seen everything just like we have so. Yeah, just about, <laughs> I yeah. I don't think I've seen everything, but I'm just kind of like 
I'll take it when it becomes. Yeah. Not surprised by much, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so who would you say is your favorite regular patron or maybe regular student that you might have come across while you were in Library World? I think I have a couple. It was when I was working in a public library in the South Island. And I thought they were pretty cool that I actually wrote a couple of articles about them um, because I think they were just so different. One was a man named Tony. Tony was uh, in his 70s and he comes to the library every day and he's waiting for the library to open and he's not often the first in, but he's there, right, when you open the doors. He uh, speaks at least three languages, European languages, and he has lived all his life in his New Zealand and he prefers to live in a caravan. Hmm. And he is um, suspicious of the internet. So he has a computer in his caravan, but he doesn't connect it to the internet. It's for doing his own research. Um, you know, and his own writing, writing his life story and his biography, etc. So he comes in and he's very respectful of the library. He says hello to everybody. He, um, in the library that I was working at, you're limited on how long you can use the computer before so that everybody gets a turn. Mm -hmm. And if it's not busy, you can, you know, book your time again. So he was very respectful and he'd book his hour on the computer and then he'd go and read the newspaper and he'd go and look at his books for his research. And he wasn't a library user. And he, he didn't have a library card. He didn't see the need for one. He'd do all his things in the library. I think that was so cool. Man of independent means. That's it. Yeah. And then there was, can I tell you about my other favorite library Sure. User? Yeah, please do. The other one was also a man who um, worked for council. He had a family and lived um, in a rural area, so it wasn't easy to get to the library. And he and I used to talk about um, international DVD series. So we both had this thing that we wanted to watch Scandi, Scandinavian crime TV series. And um, the library, the person who purchased the DVDs also wanted to watch <laughs> Scandinavian crime series. So we had quite a good selection. And we would spend our time whenever he would come in and we would chat about, you know, the latest episodes that we'd watched on DVD and swap DVDs because I would purchase them and he would um, borrow them and bring them back and we'd talk about them. And I just think that's lovely. That is pretty neat. Yeah. Okay, our last question, and then you're off the hook. <laughs> what are people, and this may go to your uh, one of your favorite patrons, what are people without library cards missing out on? Oh, my goodness. You know, this one stumped me because I know a lot of people who do not have library cards, and I know them very well. You know, family members, quite a lot of my family don't have library cards. And I don't think they're missing out on anything because they're choosing to live the life that they want to live. And um, that most things in New Zealand, you can use the library and go to library events. You can read all of those things without needing a library card. So they can go in and read the newspaper and catch up on the news 
around the world if they wanted to. They don't need a library card to do that. You can do that in the library without having a library card. You can go to all the events in the library without having a library card. You can um, use the internet without having a library card. I don't, I think the benefit of having a library card is that you are using your tax-funded dollars <laughs> hmm. and that um, you are paying for the service through your taxes and so why not use it? But I think really if I'm just going to be the first to say that I don't think you need a library card. <laughs> Again, another <laughs> first. That's, that's okay. It's great. I mean, you can get all the ben a huge number of benefits without using the library card. Just like my regular patient, um, patron Tony, he got everything he needed without being a library member. Yeah. Wow. That was yeah, shocking, isn't it? That was, a librarian. To use a, a, an American uh, phrase, that was out of left field. <laughs> <laughs> Well done, Chris. I know. I'm sorry. I tried really. I tried. I even oh. did some research around what <laughs> missing out one. And that's and another I first. No one's ever researched our questions before. That's right. <laughs> I couldn't bring myself to say any of those things that they say you need a library card for. Wow, this has been I something think else. A great honest answer. <laughs> this is a little throwaway at the end, and you made it so meaningful. This is amazing. <laughs> Um, however, you do need a library and you do need librarians. Oh, yeah. But I don't think you need a library card <laughs> because it's all about outreach, right? Librarians don't need to be, I think, you know, I could go, I could make some stuff up here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, library cards are so divisive. All of these rules that you've got to have, you've got to meet certain criteria, you've got to live in a certain place in order to get a library card, you've got to be able to return books on time or you get fined. God, that's just so restrictive. Hmm. Sorry. It's fine. <laughs> She's looking to the right like, oh, I shouldn't have I think it's that. a great perspective, honestly. <laughs> no, this is refreshing, actually. It's actually yeah. great. So we have to say thanks for being such a great sport. Answering, <laughs> you, you answered these questions with such vim and vigor. I, yeah. I, I am, I, I'm actually smiling from ear to ear because this is, this is not what I was expecting, and I'm so incredibly <laughs> pleased by it. It's been a great time because this was completely different than what I expected, and it's a wonderful thing. This was so much fun to talk about the thing. You get it. You get the training. You get the how to approach people. You get all that stuff. And that, that that speaks to me because the way I do things are different than what other people do. And, you know, you get the eye roll sometimes. Oh, Chris is talking to them again. You know, but it's <laughs> it, it's just refreshing to hear that, you know, I'm not the only one out there. You may be on the other side of the planet, but, you know, that's, that's just a minor detail. Sally, it was very inspiring. And I love the positive perspective that you took on absolutely everything. So, and I love the unique perspective that you bring to not just the questions, but the entire podcast. And I think our listeners, our listeners, and definitely Chris and I, um, the, the takeaway is that you need to just not rush, slow down, take things, uh, you know, one thing at a time. And I think uh, it's going to be a great, great learning experience for all of our, our listeners. Yeah, I think, you know, the world is so fast and furious and confusing and angry. And, you know, let's just chill out a bit it's yeah. probably a new zealand perspective right 
Let's just chill out. What are we Chris, getting excited about? I think that's the title of the of the episode, Chris. Chill out a bit. Chill out a bit. <laughs> that's awesome. I think that's it. So, Sally, give us some plugs. Library Boss. Yeah, cool. The Library Boss. Um, I'm developing this course, and I'm hoping to release it early next year. It's a course on how to motivate reluctant library staff to use tech. So... We're all reluctant at one time or another, right? Some of us remain reluctant forever, and some of us continue to go on that journey and gradually utilize new tech tools. My course is how to do that in as quick a way as possible, less fluff, all of those things that I've been talking about, how to make it personal, how to focus on one thing, how to be approachable, quick tools on how to make... um, how to encourage reluctant library staff to move. And I want to focus on the fact that we are all reluctant at one time or another and that people who are reluctant now on this particular tool may not be reluctant on another particular tool. So it's a a context-dependent kind of thing. And I think we get caught up in labelling people reluctant and um, I want us to get caught up in looking at how we can change that perspective for those particular people by having more conversation. So what I really, really like to plug is if you're interested in something like that and you'd like to be a beta tester for the course, let me know. If you have a group of people who want to be a beta tester for the course, let me know and we can work on that. Wow, that's not awesome. I don't know what is. That's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sally, give us all your feeds. How can we get in contact with you? Yeah. Um, so, you can find me on Twitter, is probably where I'm most prominent, which my Twitter handle is Sally Heroes. Alternatively, you can find me on the librarybus.com. I've got lots of options there to subscribe to newsletters and keep up to date and to email me. Uh, and you can do a, a Google search if you can remember how to spell my last name because that's a tricky <laughs> bit. Um, but yeah, Sally Heroes, do a Twitter, su- uh, do a Google search for it. You'll find me. And you are library pros approved for sure. This Absolutely. <laughs> Boy, this is fun. <laughs> All right, so we got to finally. I can't believe we have to wrap up. This is so it's way too much fun. <clears throat> <laughs> Okay, so that that's unfortunately all the time we have for this this edition. And if you have any questions or comments on our show, um, go to the contact us section of the website, thelibrarypros.com, and we'll include links and photos from from this and all the episodes on our site. And don't forget to visit us on Twitter at, at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com/slash the Library Pros. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review on the service of your choice and tell a friend. Remember, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Station Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. So we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sagem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer. 
Carlton Welch. 